Well, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, we are uh, excited and blessed that you've decided to join us this morning. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of Cane Bay. Um, interestingly enough, if you've been here for the last few weeks, or the last, actually since about the beginning of the year, you realize that we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, and it is uh, not coincidental that we are walking through Timothy this morning on Mother's Day. And so we will again uh, continue in 1 Timothy this morning. First uh, Timothy chapter 4 is where we will be. Uh, Timothy, interestingly enough, I think is quite appropriate for us to talk about on Mother's Day um, because Timothy had very strong female influences in his life. If you have your Bibles, just flip them open real fast to 2 Timothy. Uh, we're going to fast forward just a little bit into uh, the book of 2 Timothy. I just want you to see this one verse this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I remember your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Timothy was a young man who had strong female influences. Actually, most scholars believe that Timothy's father was not even a believer. And so here we have Timothy, young pastor at the church at Ephesus. And Paul says to him, I remember that your, that your faith that you have now that dwells in you first dwelt in your grandmother and your mother. And what we recognize this morning on Mother's Day is the value and the importance of a godly mother in the life of her children. We see it in the life of Timothy. And so mothers, this morning, we we celebrate you. We celebrate what God is doing in you. And I want you to know this morning that your job as a mother is not to be perfect. It's not to be perfect. And you're not going to raise perfect Kids, I have a one-year-old, and I already can tell you he's not perfect and not going to be ever. And so there is this, um, there is this kind of crushing, I feel like, guilt in our culture that says we're supposed to be perfect moms and raise perfect kids, and that is not your job. Your job as a mother is to point them to the one who was perfect on their behalf, and that's Jesus. And so I don't have 10 tips for you on how to be a better mother or seven ways to raise perfect kids. But what I can give you this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel, it is the gospel that will grip the heart of a mother and the heart of her children and make the ultimate difference. Pray over your kids, moms. If you're not already, which I assume many of you are, pray over your kids, pray for your kids, pray with your kids. I read something this week where somebody was kind of writing about prayer being a passive approach, and I don't believe that at all. Prayer is actively petitioning the God of the universe on behalf of your children. So pray. When I was about 17 years old, I I was looking for something at my parents' house, and I found a collection of notebooks. I didn't know what they were, and I just started to flip through them, and I noticed, I started to read, and I started to see that these notebooks were full of my mother's prayers for children. And as I flipped back, I saw where she'd been praying for me since I was young, eight, nine, 10, 11. The things that she'd been praying for me and things that I had already begun to see in my life that she had been praying for somehow years before. And I cannot tell you how much that has impacted me going forward, knowing 
that my mother did not only pray with me, but she prayed over me and for me when I wasn't even around. Sing over your kids. Even if you can't sing, sing over them. In Zephaniah 3, it says that God exalts over his children with singing. Sing to your children. A couple weeks ago, um, my son, one of the great things that he does is he sleeps like a champion. And so if he wakes up in the middle of the night, we know something's odd. And he woke up in the middle of the night a couple weeks back. And I went in there to get him. It was my turn. I went in there to get him uh, and tried to put him back to sleep. And it wasn't happening. And so Allison got up and took him. And she sat in the rocking chair. And I sat on the couch in the dark in the middle of the night. And she rocked my son. And she sang, uh, Come Thou Fount, the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I sat and I listened to my wife sing over my son as my son went back to sleep. And I realized in that moment that in the mind and heart of my young son, the voice of the Holy Spirit probably sounds a lot more like his mommy's than it does mine. (laughs) Sing over your kids. Pray over your kids. Weep with your kids. Celebrate with your kids. And all the while, tell them about Jesus. That's your job as a mom. Tell them about Jesus. Dads, you have a wife and you have a mother, and your wife is not your mother. And so the best thing that you can do today for the mother of your children is make it a consistent pattern in your life to love her the way that Jesus loved his bride, the church, so much so that he sacrificed for her, that he laid his life down for her. It is your job as a husband and as a father, to be an example of Jesus to your wife and to your children. And the way that you do that is through humbly and lovingly serving them. And so I think it's great that you got up this morning and that you made breakfast for mom and that you brought her a charm on her Pandora bracelet, and that's awesome. But listen, God hasn't called us to be Easter and Christmas Christians, and he hasn't called us to be holiday husbands. And so if the only time you're celebrating and treasuring your wife the mother of your children is on Mother's Day or on your anniversary or on her birthday, you're being a crappy husband and a poor example of Jesus. Consistently, daily, love her in a way that exemplifies Jesus. Again, you're not going to be perfect, but we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. Now, I understand that Mother's Day is not a celebratory day in the lives of everyone in this room. I get that. I understand that. I'm not naive enough to believe that there are not people in this room that this morning, Mother's Day drags up wounds for you. Maybe this is your first Mother's Day without your mom. Or maybe you're a mother who's lost a children, who lost a child. And Mother's Day just kind of shines a light on this wound. Or maybe you have a strained relationship with your mother or your mother and you have a strained relationship with your child. What I need you to hear this morning is that God is not ignorant of that pain. He is not ignorant of that pain. He understands that, and he wants to enter into that with you. In Psalm 34, it says that God is near to the brokenhearted. That means when our hearts are broken, God is most near to us. And so this morning, some of you came in here, you didn't even want to come because you knew that they'd be talking about moms, and you just have this mom wound in your heart, and God wants you to know this morning that he is near. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Who have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire none above you, though my heart and my flesh may fail. The Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forever. So what you need to hear this morning is though your heart and your flesh may have failed you, the Lord will not fail. And it is only the Lord who can take the deepest of heart wounds and turn them into the joy of his presence. And so we're not asking you to put on a happy face this morning if this is a hard day for you, but what I am asking you to do is embrace the nearness and the presence of God even in your woundedness. Now, for some of you, Mother's Day is a difficult day because you are a woman who wants to be a mom and for whatever reason, you aren't. And I understand, I see that, I feel that wound. But what I want to do is I want to point you just again, very lovingly, very graciously towards Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we know the story that Adam and Eve sin and they separate themselves from God. And at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says that the man looks to the woman and he names her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, interestingly enough, Eve does not become a mother until much later in Genesis chapter 4. So it's interesting that Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living, before she's even had children. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that those desires to nurture and love and raise children, God has given you those. And they are good, strong desires. And even though now you may be wrestling through why you don't have children, God has provided an environment wherein you can begin to work out those good desires, and that's the church. And when we talk about the church as family, and when we talk about the church as home, we mean that God has given us an environment wherein we begin to enact the good gifts that he has good given us and the good desires that he has placed within us. And so my prayer is that women in this church at whatever relationship you have with motherhood, however this day strikes you, that you would understand that this is a place wherein God has a design and a purpose for you and your gifts, and that you would embrace that, and that our church would be a safe place for women, for mothers. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd just like to pray, just before we dive in, I'd just like to pray for and over the women in our church. You are an important, valuable part of who we are and who God has designed us to be. And so I just want to celebrate that this morning and recognize that through Mother's Day. So would you pray with me? God, thank you that you have not given us a church of all dudes. Thank you. God, I'm grateful for the women in this congregation. And I'm grateful for the way that I see the Holy Spirit working in and through them. And God, I do pray that our church would be a safe place a good place, a healthy place for the women that you have made and designed and called to be able to work out the calling that you've given them on their lives. Thank you for faithful, godly women that sit in this room this morning that serve with our children, that serve on our greeting team, 
God, I'm so thankful for the way that I see Jesus in the women in our church. And so, God, I pray that we would continue to be a church that loves our sisters in Christ well. That we would be a church, God, where there is not rivalry amongst the genders, but, God, that through unity, our community and our neighborhoods and our world would see Jesus reflected in this place. And so I'm thankful for this morning. I pray that you be with the mothers in this room as they seek to be examples of Jesus to their children. God, that you would give them just a good joy in you that would overflow into joy into the lives of their children and of their husbands. I pray for husbands and fathers in this room this morning, God, that we would humbly and sacrificially love our wives. I pray for those, God, this morning that are hurting, God, that they would feel even now your presence and that they would find comfort and peace and joy in knowing that you are near, that you are in control, that you are the giver of all things good. Thank you that you've loved us enough to tell us who you are and who you've designed and called us to be. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor at the church at Ephesus. And early on in 1 Timothy, he addresses what was a major problem in the church at Ephesus, and that was uh, false teaching. And in the first few chapters, he just addresses this false teaching rather generally, just saying that it was present. But now in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's going to address a specific false teaching that had worked its way inside of the church, and it was changing the hearts and and changing the perceptions of those who were in the church. And that's what false teaching seeks to do. All false teaching seeks to distort our image of God so that we no longer worship the God of the Bible, but worship a God of our own making. And Paul says this is what's beginning to happen in the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and that this false teaching was affecting their ability to exalt God as God and the means by which they were doing so. And so what I want you to see this morning, what we're going to work through in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is this, the central truth that we exalt God by enjoying his gifts. We exalt God by enjoying his gifts. And I want to show you where we get that from 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just stop by the connection table on your way out. Also, all of my notes will be on the YouVersion app. If you have your phone or tablet, you can follow along there, and all of the notes will be on the screen behind me. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 
So what I want to look at this morning is two parts to this section of Scripture. First, I want to look at gifts rejected. And the second part I want to look at is grace received. And understanding that we exalt God through enjoying his gifts. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is gifts rejected. Now, Paul has some very strong language for the false teaching that has worked its way into Ephesus. Did, did you hear what he said? Like, this is an aggressive passage. I, as I was working through this, I was talking to a couple guys earlier, and they were like, how, how in the world are you going to teach that on Mother's Day? Like, that is an aggressive passage against false doctrine. And Paul says that these men that are teaching this have departed from the faith, that they have devoted themselves to the teaching of demons and to deceitful spirits, and in doing so, they have become liars with seared consciences. It's pretty strong language, right? And so if we look at that, we begin to think, man, what were these guys teaching? Like, were they sacrificing kittens? Like, were they white shoes and Kool-Aid? Like, what are they teaching here? Has to be something terrible if Paul's going, you're liars with seared consciences. What were they teaching? Here's what they were teaching that Paul has such strong condemnation for. They were teaching something called asceticism. Asceticism. And here's what the doctrine of asceticism is. It is that salvation comes to us through self-denial. That our holiness or our standing before God is somehow determined by what we give up. That what we abstain from, that the indulgences, the things that we do not partake of, that we are made more holy by rejecting more things. And so they began to believe that we are saved not by what Jesus has done on our behalf, but also by what we do, or more specifically, by what we don't do. And Paul has very, very strong words for these men. Now, there is absolutely a piece of personal holiness that is abstaining from certain things. Like, don't, don't, don't mishear me this morning. Let's not go overboard. There is absolutely a part of personal holiness that says, I'm going to say no to this thing. But asceticism isn't that. It's not that. It is an intentional denial of things that God has declared to be good as a means of saving ourselves by our works. And it's declaring that abstinence from these things is essential to our salvation. And Paul calls this teaching demonic. And he does so because of what uh, he does so, and John Calvin, the great reformer, agrees with him because of this idea John Calvin once said, in despising the gift, we insult the giver. So some of you have Mother's Day plans today, and let's say that you were to go home and that you were to take a gift to your mother or husband's, you were to give a gift to your wife for Mother's Day, and as she opened it, she looks at this and goes, well, I don't want this. Why would you spend money on this? I have no need for this. This is an awful gift. Now, not only has she despised the gift, but she's also done what? Insulted you, right? It's like, I thought you would like this. 
thought you wanted this. I thought this would be useful to you. And so when we say, I don't want this, I don't need this, not only are we despising the gift, but we are insulting the giver. And specifically at the church at Ephesus, they were rejecting two gifts of God. They were rejecting marriage and they were rejecting certain foods. And there were those inside the church. These were not attacks coming from outside. They were inside the church. There were those inside the church who were saying, you are made a holy by abstaining from marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Now, why were they doing so? They believed that if we were to get married, that it implied sexual intimacy, which it more than implies. And they believed that to be unclean. They said, no, no, that's, it's not holy. It's dirty. It's wrong. Sex is beneath those who are truly devout and truly holy. And they thought the same thing about certain foods. They said, don't eat those foods. Those foods are unclean. So they began to believe that gifts that God had given us as good things were beneath them. But sex and food are two of God's greatest gifts. Amen? Amen. And both were created by God for our enjoyment. And God has set certain parameters around how we enjoy sex and food, not to rob us of the joy of those things, but to maximize our joy in them. That's what you need to understand. The parameters around those things, they're not to keep us from joy, but they are to maximize our joy in the gifts So sex is maximized and it is at its best when it is between two covenant partners, man and woman, who have covenanted together in marriage, who love one another and are committed to one another and express their love to one another through physical intimacy. And through those things, sex is a joyous gift of God. And food, food is best enjoyed when it is eaten in a balanced way. You ever, you ever eaten like just really, like I do this every Thanksgiving. Like I have to wear sweatpants to the table. You know, it's just like a little give. And you eat, you eat, you eat, and afterwards you're just like, oh my gosh, why did I do that to myself? But you ever eaten a meal that was so good at the end of it, like you just, you felt full, but you didn't feel stuffed. And it's just like, oh man, this is, this is what it means. So God has given us those parameters. He said, if you enjoy this gift in this way, it will maximize your joy in them. Now, why has he given us these parameters? Some of you might say, well, obviously, if he's given us parameters for his gifts, that means that there's something inherently bad about those gifts. But that's not the problem at all. You see, he gives us these parameters not because his gifts are wicked, but because we are. Because our sinful hearts want to take God's gifts and make them our gods. And we call this idolatry. We call it idolatry, taking something that God has created and given us for our good and making that good thing a God thing, which makes it a bad thing which makes it a bad thing. And so our hearts, our sinful hearts are consistently and constantly taking things that God has given us for our good and placing them above God, 
which robs them of their goodness. And it robs them of their goodness. And so one way for us to fight idolatry, if idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing, which makes it a bad thing, one way that we fight idolatry is to just reject all of God's gifts outright. And just say, I don't want any part of this, God, because I might make this an idol. This might become an idol in my life, so I'm not going to partake of this. And this is the heart of asceticism. This is what these people were saying. They're saying, well, no, 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 deny marriage. Deny sexual intimacy inside of marriage because that's an idol. And deny food because that can be an idol. And when you do those things, it makes you more holy. And some of us actually fall into that belief, and we look at people that deny themselves and go, man, man, those are the holy folks. Those folks are so holy. And it appears on the outside that they're holy and wise, but they actually aren't. They're not. Paul says this in Colossians to the church at Colossae. I know what that was. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Listen to this, 23. These have indeed an an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So so did you hear what Paul said there? What he's saying is it may appear holy and wise for us to abstain from things that God has ordained as good, and we might think that this keeps us from making idols, but it doesn't. Someone once wrote that it just makes us thinner and thinner idolaters. Why? Why is it of no value? Because the wickedness and the sin isn't in the gifts, it's in us. And so simply rejecting the gifts does nothing about the wickedness in our own hearts. Rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic doesn't save the ship. And so simply rejecting God's gifts outright as a means Stop our idolatry doesn't stop our idolatry. In fact, it compounds it. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, very early in his life, became very afraid of death and the subsequent judgment. Terrified. If you read anything about Martin Luther early on, it says that he all of a sudden just became terrified of the idea that he would die and be judged. And so he made a vow to God that he would become a monk. And so he became a monk, and he spent long days and hours and weeks fasting and confessing everything that came to his mind and long hours of silent prayer and contemplation, and he rejected anything that might appear worldly. And interestingly enough, If you read Luther's writings about that period in his life, it says that during that time, he did not become more spiritual, but he became less so. Luther writes and he says, I lost touch with Christ 
the Savior and Comforter, and made him the jailer and hangman of my soul. And some of you this morning have made Christ the jailer and hangman of your soul. And you go, ah, I can't. Got to reject those things because Jesus, man. Because Jesus. There's this begrudging submission in us, and God is not glorified in our begrudging submission. And so Luther said that he fell into a state of spiritual depression. And it wasn't until much later that another man in the monastery came to him and began to explain to him the merits of Christ's work on his behalf and the merits of grace in his life, that Luther's heart became awakened to the grace that which Jesus has offered us and the goodness of the gifts that God has given to us. And this is why Paul would say that asceticism is so demonic. Because we begin to believe that our standing before God is not based on what Jesus has done, but on what we do. And it teaches us that God is some cosmic killjoy out to make sure that you do not enjoy yourself at all on your way to heaven. And it makes God out to be this God who's withholding. And he holds back from us real joy so that we might be holy. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says that in our joy, in the gifts that God has given us, we will find joy in the giver, and when we have joy in the giver, we will find holiness, pursuing God as the means to our joy. He is not this God who is withholding good things from us, but he has given us all good things through Jesus. I'm reading an incredible book right now that I could not more highly recommend. It's called The Things of Earth. It's written by a man named Joe Rigney. And in this book, he says this, and I read this the other day, and I thought this is so true. He said, demons love to depict God as miserly. They love to depict God as somebody who's withholding good things from you. And that's not the God of the Bible. In James chapter 1, James says that every good gift comes to us from the Father of lights. And in Matthew chapter 7 verse 11, Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, won't the creator, the God of the universe, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to his children? If I know how to pick out a good present for my son, and I, like Paul, am the chief of all sinners, won't the holy, beautiful, almighty God of the universe know how to give good gifts to his kids? And so the question then is how do we interact with the gifts that God's given us and not turn them into God's themselves? How do we take good things and keep them as good things? And so we move to the second part, grace received. Look at what he says in verse 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, so how, how do we receive God's gifts? When, underline that word right there. If it is received with, what's it say? 
Thanksgiving. So if we receive God's gifts in an attitude of gratitude, there you go, you know I'm Baptist, that rhymed, and in an attitude of gratitude back to the Father, we receive his gifts with thanksgiving, not in a way that it terminates on us, but in a way that it develops and overflows back into gratitude to the giver. We keep our good gifts where they are, as good things that God has given to us for his glory and our joy. And so we appropriately engage God's gifts when our enjoyment of these gifts leads to an exalting of the one who has given them to us. Um, I, I'm a little bit, I have a little bit of a sweet tooth, a little bit. And, and my two favorite things are uh, chocolate chip cookies and Reese's peanut butter cups. When we first got married, Allison, I came home one day, and Allison had taken my two favorite gifts, and she had combined them into one. And she had chopped up Reese's peanut butter cups and used them as the chocolate chips and cookies. And I cannot tell you the joy that filled my spirit. <laughs> I love, we call them Reese's cookies, and I asked for them all the time. I was just like, she's like, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, just Reese's cookies. That's really all I need. And when I eat this cookie, when I eat this cookie, man, oh, there's just, this, there's just this moment of just like bliss that comes from that. Now, it would be very easy for me in my enjoyment of this cookie, of eating this Reese's cookie, it would be easy for me to eat this cookie and go, this cookie is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. And begin to elevate the cookie over the cookie maker. And so in that moment, I can make my wife and the Reese's cookies rivals for my heart. They can become rivals for affection where I begin to go, okay, Reese's cookies was Allison. Reese's cookies, Allison. Like there's this rivalry. Or there's another way that I can engage with this. Or if my enjoyment of the cookie is real and it's deep and it's satisfying and it results in the praising of my wife and the appreciation for her efforts, then my love for the cookie is of no threat to my wife. She wants me to enjoy the cookie. That's why she made it. She made this so that I would enjoy it, and my enjoyment in it increases my love for her. And so once the issue of my supreme love for my wife as the cookie maker is established, then it is right and good and fitting for me to sit back and enjoy the cookie. God has given us good gifts. He's given us good things for our enjoyment. And we can put those things on a scale and go, do I enjoy this more than I enjoy God? Or we can allow our joy in the good gifts he has given us 
to what C.S. Lewis says is to follow the sunbeams back to the sun and increase our joy in the giver. So what are things in your life that are tempting that are tempting to rival your affections for who God is? Maybe it's your kids. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your kids. In fact, God wants you to love and enjoy your kids. That's why he gave them to you. But when our kids become good things that we make God things, something's out of whack there. Kids make terrible gods. Maybe it's your career. God has given you that career. He wants you to work. He wants you. Men, God created you to bear responsibility and to work. And so when you throw yourself into your vocation, God is honored by that. But when our vocation becomes greater than our God, it becomes dangerous. So what are the things in your life that you allow, that you make good things that become God things? And then how do you ask the Holy Spirit to help you find the appropriate level of joy in those things so that those things lead you back to the Son? So that they lead you back to Son. We exalt God when we enjoy his gifts. So let me give you a couple of examples in my life as, as I kind of close. So I try to be cognizant of this thing. This is the hardest thing. I've actually found that it's, more, that it's more difficult for me, and I don't know if this is for you, it's actually more difficult for me to be cognizant of God when things are good than when things are bad. Like when things are good, when times are tough, like I want to be cognizant of God, but when things are good, sometimes it's hard for me to be cognizant of God. And so one of the things that the Holy Spirit has been teaching me and this idea of, enjoy, of exalting God through enjoying his gifts is trying to teach me that God, the Holy Spirit is trying to teach me is to see the goodness of God in things that I enjoy. So let me give you a couple examples. Um, I love skylines, like city skylines. You ever flown into to like a, a city, like a major metropolitan city at night? You ever flown in a city? Beautiful. A couple years ago, my wife and I were in Manhattan and one night we went out and we just looked at the Manhattan skyline, and I was blown away by the beauty of the skyline. Now, in that moment, I can look at that beautiful skyline and just simply go, how beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? But what God is teaching me to do is begin to see the glory of God in beauty. And so when I look at the skyline, I can look at those lights going out into the darkness and know that the darkness will never overcome the light. And it reminds me of John 1. And so I can see the beauty of a skyline and thank God for the fact that the light always overcomes the darkness. And it takes the gift and it runs my mind back to the giver. Anybody seen the new Star Wars trailer? I watched that Star Wars trailer. Some of you guys were just like, oh, what? nerd. I watched the Star Wars trailer. You can ask the guys. First time I saw it, I was in the office with the rest of the guys and the staff and the pastors. And, and I, was just, I was just blown away. I was blown away. Why? Because Star Wars has a very important life, a very important piece of my childhood. It's the first time that I understood movies could be like that. And so when I watched the Star Wars trailer, it almost became this religious experience for me. Now, here's why. In that moment, I can watch this 
trailer, this thing that means so much to my childhood. And for some of you, you might go, oh, oh, don't making that an idol in your life. No, 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 no. Here's what I can do. I can watch that and I can watch those movies and I can be grateful for the creativity and the wonder that God has placed inside his creation and I can use even a movie preview to go, you are good and you give good gifts to your children. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting on my back porch having dinner with um, my wife and my son and David and Ashley Barton. And David and Ashley have been friends of ours for years and years and years. And there was a moment we were on our back porch and the weather was perfect and the sun was going down and the grill was still hot and we were eating a meal together and my son was laughing and throwing things on the floor. And David and Ashley and my wife and I were sharing stories and we were laughing, we were enjoying one another's company. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit gripped my heart and I looked at my family and my friends and good food. And I thought, it's all grace. It's all grace. I don't deserve any bit of this. But in God's goodness and his grace and his love, he gives good gifts to his children. And so I allow that food and that family and that friendship to run my eyes from the table back to the throne. It's all grace. G.K. Chesterton wrote this quote that I read this week, and we'll finish here. He said, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip my pen in the ink. That is receiving God's gifts as good and using his good gifts as a means to exalt the giver. And so Christianity despite what you may hear in popular culture and despite what our sinful hearts may tell us, is not a religion where we serve a cosmic killjoy God and we make sure that we white-knuckle it long enough not to get to heaven. No, no, no. True Christianity is for those who desire to laugh the loudest and love the deepest and live the fullest for his glory, for my joy, and others' good. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the greatest gift, the gift of yourself, that no created thing could ever compare with the gift of your presence in our lives. And so God, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that it encourages us, that it challenges us, that it reminds us of your supremacy in all things. 
And so God, this morning, I pray that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would begin to root out things in our lives, areas of our lives where we have taken good things and made them God things. You would convict us of that, teach us to repent of that and not to neglect the good things you have given us, Father, but to use your gifts as a means to put our eyes and our hearts and our minds on you. Thank you that you are a father who longs to give good gifts to your children and I pray, God, that we would use those gifts for our joy in you for your glory in this community and that others might see and know and believe that you are good and do good always. In Jesus' name we pray.